wanted to start this podcast to share hunting stories of my experiences and what I've done over the years. There's so much more that is involved in hunting than just pulling the trigger and killing an animal. We want to be inspirational, educational, but we also want to have a good time and teach you how to have a good time as well. Today, I have Jed Fetter. With any flintlock, there is some delay. With the custom-built rifles like I'm making, they go off very fast. But you have to hold that rifle steady and give it time to ignite. It's not just pull the trigger back. There's an art to it. It's not like holding a regular rifle. There is an actual method to holding the rifle to prevent you from flinching. The gun has a name, a flinch lock. A lot of guys shoot them, they flinch, and they miss. Honestly, if it was a guarantee every time, I don't think it would be near as fun. When you're shooting a round ball, certain things happen that don't normally happen with a regular sabotaged bullet. It made a complete right-hand turn. The bullet followed that seam and ended up coming out her femoral artery. Welcome to Hunting Day with Stephen Robbins. Now for your host, Stephen Robbins. All right, guys and gals, welcome back to another episode of Hunting Day. Today, I have Jed Fetter. He's going to be back with us. And we actually had Jed on the podcast Earlier this year, he was episodes 11 and 12, and on those episodes, we covered a lot of in-detail on trapping, the how-tos, the whatnots, and uh, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly encourage you to go ahead and do that as well. When we ended episode 12, me and Jed were talking about flintlock muzzleloader hunting, and Jed had talked about building his own 54 cal flintlock. I got Jed back because I want to talk about it. So Jed, thanks for being back, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. All right. So I got to know, well, I know because I follow you on Facebook and we're good friends there. So I know that you had a really good season with the flintlock, but tell us a little bit about it. So two years ago, my dad and I went to an artisan show and we decided we wanted to build a flintlock from scratch. We bought the barrel. We bought the stock, lock, stock, and barrel. We got it all. And um, over the two-year uh, two course, we uh, built this thing, and we finally finished it. I believe it was right at the end of September and got it shot in and ready to go for the early muzzleloader season here in uh, Pennsylvania. So like I said, it's a 54 caliper. It's a 44-inch uh, barrel, swamp barrel, and um, it has a trades trades rifle-style uh, lock on it with a 7-8 English flint that goes in it. So it's just it's not built based on any particular model, not like a Bex or a Lancaster County or any of that. It's whatever we saw in the gun is what we built. So and it turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful rifle, and it shoots like a dream. It it is a beautiful rifle. I don't, I can't attest to how it shoots, but seeing what you've done with it, I can I, I feel like I can say it shoots really nice. But that is such a beautiful handcrafted weapon, and to say that you and your dad did it, that's got to be that's got to hold a lot more meaning to just buying one, right? It does. The, this just the time we spent doing it and the memories we've made together building it. It just there. There's nothing that can be really said about other than just a strong father son connection that we had doing it. And to be able to pick that rifle up, 
take it out into the woods. It just has more meaning than you could ever say. So it hangs over my fireplace on beautiful wrought iron hooks and it, it'll always have a story behind it, no matter whether I kill a deer with it or if it just hangs there the rest of its life, it's always going to have a story behind it. So and it'll be a family heirloom. I hope to have passed down for generations to come now. That's awesome because the fact that you built that you and your dad, and now you can pass that down to your son, grandchildren and so on and so on that that's, I feel like that's what hunting is about, right? Hunting is short. It's about scouting. It's about killing an animal. It's about all the benefits that we reap afterwards. But I feel like where what I want to, why I do this, right? Why I want hunting day. And it's, it's about what we leave behind and the memories we make in that process. Um, and I know you hunt with Daniel, and y'all have had a great season, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But when I hunt with Ava and Zoe, like my goal, obviously, is to make it fun for them and also for them to ultimately kill a deer or an animal that we're chasing at that time. But it's the memories that we build that when they are, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, maybe when they're they're old and have their own kids and grandkids, they can look back and say, I had some really special moments with my dad that I just, that gives me chills. And it's something that I'm passionate about that. And I don't get me wrong. Parents can make memories with their kids doing a lot of things, but hunting and conservation is something that I'm passionate about. And I hope that I'm pouring that into my kids as well. Absolutely. That's exactly how I feel. And, you know, for me to be able to look at a deer head hanging on the wall and just be able to close my eyes and see the memories of me and my son or me and my father together and what we did that day, it's just, it, it's so strong. And it's a part that I don't think people really understand outside of our hunting community. I don't think they quite get it. It's just, there's a brothership of camaraderie to this that it's more than just the killing and it, it just embodies everything that we do and it, it all just comes down to this heritage that we keep going absolutely because without us passing this on to the next generation it stops here it ends here and i think and i could be overstepping here because i try to not get into politics on on this because People believe what they believe, right? But I feel like there are certain people that want it to stop um, for for reasons unknown, reasons that I think I know, but I, I don't really know the mind of some other people and what their, what their thought process is. But until they make it illegal, I'm going to continue to do this. I'm going to continue to instill in my kids what hunting is and what it means to us and also to all of our listeners and that's something that why i love having you on here because you're like me and many of my other guests that i've had on here we're like-minded in a fact that this is who we are absolutely i mean yeah it down to my core this is who i am and as i you know if you look at this country what founded 
the United States of America was the fur trade. That was the foundation of what built this country. It is our heritage as Americans. That's why we thrive and who we are today was from the fur trade, was from you know trading buckskins and doe skins and bison, all that. That is what first established us as a nation. That was our revenue source. And it just, you know, the trickle down effect, it just became into this. Now it's our heritage. It's what we do. It's what we love. It most definitely is. And um, we'll talk on next week's podcast. I'm going to kind of build up into this. You're going to talk. We're, we're going to do a, a round three on trapping. And uh, and we're going to talk about some unfortunateness. And me and you talked about this prior to actually starting this podcast, but um, I don't want to go too much into it, but basically the, the, the political climate that we're in today and society and, and certain costs and how they've escalated and, and it makes it harder for blue collar people to go out and do these certain things. Things like you just said that built America are now seen as hobbies and unfortunately, it, it it's they it come with a high price. And uh, but again, we'll talk more about that next week on next week's podcast. I gotta know. All right, you took your flintlock and you, this thing it's it's driving tax. Boom, 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 boom. And I am a firm believer that if shooting a flintlock, not if, but when shooting a flintlock. It increases your markmanship across the board with other weapons. Am I wrong? No, in that? absolutely. Um, with any flintlock, there is some delay. With the custom built rifles like I'm making, they they go off very fast. I mean, it, it's not like your your manufactured Thompson centers or your traditions, which are all still good guns. They're just not that handcrafted quality. But you have to hold that rifle steady and give it time to ignite. It's not just pull the trigger back. You have to give it that, you know, millisecond to ignite and for the gun to go off. And you have to hold it steady. Um, there's an art to it. It's not like holding a regular rifle. There is an actual method to holding the rifle to prevent you from flinching, which the gun has a name, a flinch lock. A lot of guys shoot them, they flinch, and they miss. They either shoot high or low. But um, there, there's methods to it in which uh, I call it the palming method. So instead of gripping the forend of the gun with your hand, you lay it in your palm. By laying it in your palm, you can't recoil back. And you, know, I, you don't grab the gun and flinch. It doesn't have the – your muscle memory won't allow you to move the gun. Okay. No, I like it. That's something that I never knew. So – I told you that uh, my buddy Nick Manns with Red Road Rifles is building me a, a custom flintlock. And actually, I texted him earlier today and I was like, hey, what's this deadline looking like? And he's like, man, I'm, I'm a little further behind, but I'm going to try to make the deadline for this year's flintlock. He said, but if not, I've got plenty that I've built already that you know, you're more than welcome to use until yours is done. Because I had him make mine out of uh, my stocks out of curly maple and just mm -hmm. you know it's it's custom to me you know mine's a 50 cal it's not the 54 um but so less about my rifle let's talk more about yours 
you took it during the early uh, muzzleloader season, right? Yeah, the early muzzleloader season in Pennsylvania, which is it's antlerless only. And uh, the first night I took it out, I ended up harvesting a doe with it. Uh, she came out, gave me a 50-yard shot, and I drilled her. First shot. And uh, it ended up being a little bit more of a track job than what I was anticipating. Um, when you're shooting a round ball, certain things happen that don't normally happen with a regular sabotaged bullet. Um, it hit her and ended up following her rib cage and her hide. It made a complete right-hand turn. She was broadside, but the bullet followed that seam and ended up coming out her femoral artery. So she was ble- she was bleeding bucket loads of blood. Just it took a little bit longer for her to bleed out. So first time in my flintlock career where I've had that happen, but I know other guys that it has happened to. It's just it's the nature of shooting a round ball. Sometimes they're unpredictable in what they're going to do at impact. Most of the time, it is devastating damage. Other times, you get a fluke like that. But um, no, it still did the job. I hit my mark exactly where I was aiming, and it just. No, there's no better feeling than doing that with something I built with my own hands. So at the moment, I am uh, I'm working on a 36 caliber squirrel gun, which is my build right now. Oh, nice. 36 caliber. Yep, and I am actually building that off of a, a John Armstrong model, which he would have been the prevalent gun maker in the area that I live in Pennsylvania. He was out of Emmitsburg, Maryland, which would have been sold to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania area. So that's why I decided to build this gun in that fashion. So I'll be excited to get that out. Hopefully, hopefully after Christmas. Yeah, probably next, probably next year. The way it's looking, but I might put uh, put my nose to the grindstone here and try to knock it out. But uh, okay, it, it's a very meticulous art, and sometimes it just doesn't go as quickly as you think it will. Yeah. All right. So let's back up to the first day of bow season. And uh, you shared a pretty special day there with Daniel, right? Yes, I did. Um, we didn't go out in the morning because it was raining the first day. So, and he was just chomping out the bit to get out. So, rain slowed down come afternoon, and we ended up going out. Uh, we had hung a two-man tree stand this past summer, and I mowed down uh, a portion of an overgrown field. I called it the kill plot. And uh, like like clockwork, four o'clock in the afternoon, does started feeding right out into it. He picked the biggest one out, and he smoked her. Uh, thirty yard shot. I thought he hit it a little back. He wanted to get down right away, go track it. I'm like, son, I think I think you're back more towards the liver. We've got to give her a little bit of time. So we end up climbing down. We went to the truck. I said, let's run and go to the store and grab a snack real quick. I just had to do something to try to get his mind calmed down a little bit because he was he was so excited because this is his first deer with a bow now, too. We come back, find his arrow. We get on the blood trail. We didn't go 45 yards, and she dumped right over. I was like, well, son, we could have tracked her right away, but um, this is you know, I wanted him to know the right way to track a deer after a bow shot if you're not exactly sure where you hit. So he, he understands that now. And uh, two Saturdays ago, we were out. And he ended up missing a buck. So, and the uh, the old twig that you can't see in between you and the deer is what bit him in the butt. 
So he hit that twig and the arrow went, I mean, it went sky high, it's gone. We can't even find it. <laughs> so he, he learned that lesson too, the hard way. That was actually the first time he missed. And uh, of course, you know, he had the waterworks. You know, you're that young and you miss, boy, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to have to overcome. And we, we, went through the, we went through the whole discussion of, you know, this, this is the start of – this is just the start of it. It's not going to ever end. I mean, you're going to get to be 50 years old someday, and you're still going to miss deer. Yeah. So it's, it's just part of what we do. And honestly, if it was a guarantee every time, I don't think it would be near as fun. I don't think it would either. The biggest challenge I've been having, we're trying to hunt out of a tree stand. He can't hold the crossbow up by himself. He has to use the shooting bar. So to try and get that deer dead in front of us so he can use the shooting bar is one of the largest challenges I'm facing. Because the morning he missed the buck, we saw six different bucks that morning. We had one at 13 yards, but it was to his right and kind of behind us. Just not where not where he could make a shot because he just he can't swing that way and hold the bow to make the shot. So he, he's learning also that, you know, the perfect opportunity has to present itself. So we have to be patient and we have to wait for it. So, and he's doing very well at learning that, which it's testing my patience. <laughs> I bet. So how old is Daniel? Daniel is seven. Seven years old. And I'm telling you what, you, these are some of the best life lessons that he will ever learn. Absolutely. He and the... Uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, he's taking them very well. Oh, let's put it. Well, I'll put it like that. He's taking them very well. The frustration that I am face that I am facing, he doesn't show it. He he just he he rolls with the punches, and he's he's just excited to be in the woods. I mean, I'm to the point that I'm just quivering to a point like, oh my goodness, we could have had that thing, you know, if we could have just swung and got it. And he's just like, well. One will eventually walk in front of us, Dad. Um, good for you, son. I am so happy you see it that way. Man, that's awesome because that's going to serve him so well in life. Where don't get hung up on the details. You got a goal in mind. You're, you're focused. And my hat's off to him because patience is not my strong suit at all. <laughs> <laughs> Mine either. I I love to hit the ground running. I, especially when it comes time to hunt with the rifle, I, I'm not a, I'm not a tree stand hunter. I like to still hunt on the ground after him. And he's teaching me, you know what? We, we have to sit still and wait for him because he's just not to that level yet where he can do that. Yeah. So he's seven. I'm soon to be 37. So at 37 years of age, I'm learning patience because I'm, I'm, you know, I thought it would be cool to start blowgun and spear hunting. I talked about this on uh, last week's episode where, you know, I'm in a tree and I've got a trophy psycho buck well within bow range. I've got trophy axis bucks, trophy fallow bucks at five yards, but they're not in my window. And um, it's eating me alive. So um, my hat is off to Daniel. And uh, I'm proud of him, and and I'm really proud of you because you know we first met. We were you were very young, um, and uh, you, you came up to Maine on a bear hunt, and that's where we first met. And and just seeing you know your progression, 
I mean, you've always been a great hunter and a great trapper and just how you've passed that on to Daniel. And I just, I know that it's, it's, I think we're going to see an exponential growth in our children as far as how they become hunters and, and the line of which they go. Um, it's going to be so much like faster for them. I, I believe so too. Cause I'm, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, um, it was more of your dad walked you into the woods, said, you sit here. This is where your spot is for the day. You know, you know how to shoot the gun. You shoot a deer if it comes. That was my, that, that was my upbringing. I didn't have any of the, the, the time actually sitting with my dad is what my son does. I didn't have the, uh, the educational aspect of, you know, dad showed me, well, here's the deer trail. Here's the buck rubs. Here's the scrapes. I, I didn't have that. It was just, you sit here in the woods and you wait. If I'd have known that when I was 15, 16 years old, I might have some booters hanging on the wall by now, but right. I'm just now learning this stuff and he's going to be so much further ahead because of it. And, uh, and don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't blame my dad at all. I just love that he got me out. It's just yeah, absolutely what we're able to do and teach our youth now is it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and to see so many more kids want to be involved. Like, like you said, my dad would say, sit here, don't move. I'll be back at dark. He's dropping, he's dropping me off in the dark. Or if he got me out of school early, you know, for the dentist appointment. Do you remember that feeling of your dad dropping you off in the dark? And you just remember watching that flashlight disappear. And you yes. were just there alone in the dark. That is one of my most vivid memories of being 12 years old and just watching or 14 or whatever it was, just watching that flashlight disappear and being in the middle of the mountains by myself. And that's when I learned, I grew up and learned there was no boogeyman in the woods. <laughs> and, and your two happiest moments were either when a deer came by or when you saw the flashlight at dark. Yep. Cause you knew <laughs> if that deer came by and you shot, he was going to be there to help or he was coming to get you and take you back to the warm truck. Oh man, I tell you what, but yeah, you're right. Like I, we didn't have that. And I don't think that that's like, I don't knock my dad for that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and thankful for the, the experience, but hunting wasn't always fun for me. And, uh, hunting became an outlet for me to, you know, channel and find a passion and, uh, was able to build upon that. But, um, yeah, gosh, a lot of, a lot of, Brings up a lot of feelings, a lot of memories, and this is what it was like last time I had you on the show, man. I just, I love it, and I love talking to you about it. And, uh, but I, I feel like, I feel like that this is where we end it, right? This is a really good ending here. And, uh, Jed, I'm gonna have you come back on next week, and we're gonna talk more about trapping. And, uh, but I'm pretty sure we covered this in the in episodes 11 and 12. But if um, our listeners wanted to reach out to you on social media, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, reach out to us on uh, Instagram or Facebook, uh, Keystone Pursuit Outdoors. Uh, just drop us a message and any one of us on there will get back to you. Keystone Pursuit Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook. And you guys, y'all are a great group of guys. I love following y'all because I can just see the, the excitement and, and the fun that you're having. Man, I just, I love it. I'm looking forward to having you back next week. Hey, thanks again for having me on. I really enjoyed my time here. Good deal, buddy. To our listeners, we appreciate everything. Keep hunting. 
and keep doing what God calls you to do. Thank you for listening to Hunting Day with Stephen Robbins. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. If you'd like to follow, you can find Stephen on Instagram at Stephen Hunt Day and Facebook at Stephen Robbins HD. If you'd like to reach Stephen, you can email him at stephen.huntingday at gmail.com.